0: A thing that looks like a police box, standing in a junkyard, it can move anywhere in time. Avon, Give priority to the detectors and the navigation systems. There is and a corridor,
1: and the corridor is time. It surrounds
0: all things. On display, display, I eventually had to go down to the cellar, that's the display department, with a torch. The lights probably gone, so had the stairs. Yours is number six. I am not a number.
1: I am a person. Welcome to British Invaders, episode 423. This is the podcast all about British science fiction television, and this time we are talking about Space Patrol. This is Brian from Canada. And this is Eamon from England. Hello. This is a marionette series from about 1963 from Roberta Lee, and it had a total of 39 episodes in black and white, about 25 minutes each, and... We should mention that it's also known as Planet Patrol sometimes in the US, because there was a 1950s show called Space Patrol, which is unrelated. But this Space Patrol is about a group of people exploring the space in the solar system and interacting with various aliens and various groups on different planets in the united galactic organization and their peacekeeping efforts
0: it is indeed and as you say brian this is an early show with marionettes with puppets on wires it's in black and white as you said So it does have the restrictions of these early marionette puppet shows, but we'll talk about some of that as we go along. Yes, absolutely. So for the setup of Space Patrol, it's the year 2100. The planets Earth, Mars and Venus have formed the United Galactic Organization, the UGO, which keeps peace in our solar system. And the crew of the spaceship Galasphere 347 are frequently sent and... Out by the UGO to investigate strange happenings in space, to help out the inhabitants on other planets, and generally to be a force for good in the solar system. And they are a multiracial, possibly multi-species crew led by their captain Larry Dart, and often sent into action by Colonel Rayburn, who we'll talk about in a moment as well, a, a quite familiar sort of setup the commanding officer and the space crew.
1: Yes, it should be noted that the captain and the colonel are both from Earth and it's other characters who are from elsewhere. They encounter a variety of different alien races and robots and... All sorts of things with lots of science fiction concepts coming into things and lots of the types of things that we can expect in a 1960s show and sort of earlier 1950s style things coming in there as well. So lots of things like that coming in. In sort of a children's science fiction show from that time. Interesting stuff. So we should look at the characters. Captain Larry Dart, voiced by Dick Vosberg, was a heroic earthborn leader of the Galosphere
0: crew, the crew from this spacecraft called the Galosphere. He is indeed. He's our commanding sort of space captain. He has his crew. His second in command is called Slim and is from V and speaks with a slightly high-pitched Venusian accent. And we'll talk a little bit as we go along about whether or not these characters are... They appear sort of humanoid, at least, Brian, but we're not quite sure if they're humans who have colonized planets or not. But that's Slim, the sort of second-in-command.
1: Yes, if they began as humans, they've changed enough that some of their, their features are a little bit different than they have abilities that are slightly different from human ones and so on husky is the third and final member of the crew he is a martian a very large person who is always hungry and always wants to eat sausages for some reason and these sort of humanoid characters, the two of them are both voiced
0: by Ronnie Stevens. And we know it's Ronnie Stevens because he has this long film and TV career. I know him perhaps best as the grandfather, the British grandfather in the Lindsay Lohan version of The Parent Trap, Brian. Um, a film that my daughter was very fond of growing up. Oh, yes. And we might hear his voice again if we get to cover the saga of in the Nog in the future, which we'd like to, but there are problems with releases for that one. But we'll come back to that. Yeah, that
1: is quite a variety of things. Interesting.
0: Now, so we've got the crew. We've got, as we say, their sort of Earth-based UGO commanding officer, Colonel Rayburn, voiced by Murray Cash, and that's Cash, K-A-S-H, Brian, it's another Canadian actor living and working in England, playing, I'm going to guess, American. I think he and Captain Larry Dart are supposed to be American. And he is slightly recognisable from these puppet series, the sort of desk-based, earth-based commanding officer who sends the extraordinary vehicles and their crew into action.
1: Yes, he does sort of have the, the standard colonel or general position. You can think of him as being a bit like Colonel White and Captain Scarlet and so on. He also has a secretary, Marla. She is from Venus and possibly helps reject some stereotypes we were thinking with there was a comment about there being no dumb blondes on venus which is kind of strange to include there at all but the venusians are supposed to be very smart and very good at coordinating things so while she's called a secretary she is like a coordinator who deals with managing a lot of things for Colonel Rayburn. And in the first 26 episodes, she was voiced by Libby Morris, but later by Isan Churchman in the final 13 episodes. There are sort of two blocks
0: of this show, and we'll get to that difference a bit later. And we wanted to just focus in on one of those actors, Isan Churchman, mainly because she's famous for playing or doing the voices of two quite well-known characters. I'm going to start with the first one, in that she was Grace Archer in the BBC's long-running radio series The Archers. And um, if you know anything about Archer's history, you will know about the famous or infamous death of Grace Archer, who rushed into burning stables trying to rescue the horses in there. This happened on air in 1955. It's one of the most famous... I don't think we had the phrase water-cooler moments then in 1955, Brian, but it is one of the most famous moments from Archer's history, the death of Grace Archer. And there's a bit of a sort of possibly urban legend or myth that's about that, and it may have been scheduled deliberately by the BBC because it happened on the same night that ITV television first launched and it was seen as possibly the bbc trying to distract from that another channel launching in in, here in the uk
1: oh interesting the i know the archers is a tremendously popular soap opera that i think is still running on bbc radio absolutely yes every day so that's yes they must have broadcast quite a few hours of that by now yes to sci-fi fans and our listeners I know some of you are probably yelling to hear about this now. Izan Churchman was also the voice of Alpha Centauri in two Doctor Who serials in the 1970s, The Curse of Peladon and The Monster of Peladon. And she actually returned to voice the role again across from Peter Capaldi's Doctor briefly in 2017 when Churchman was already in her 90s at that point. So she's played the same character in both the John Pertwee and Peter Capaldi eras. And that is quite a memorable one. And again, that was the voice she was doing. She was not in the costume in the 1970s. It was actually Stuart Fell who was in that costume.
0: And I'm sure uh, we're not alone amongst Doctor Who fans in loving it when new Doctor Who brings back cast or crew members from old Doctor Who or classic Doctor Who, Brian. Yes, absolutely. We'll round out our cast of characters with a couple more of the slightly wackier characters that you seem to have to have in one of these puppet shows. So I'll mention Professor Haggerty, who is a somewhat, I'm going to say, stereotypical, eccentric, almost mad scientist, again voiced by the notable character actor Ronnie Stevens. And he has his daughter Cassie, who assists him and sometimes seems to try and sort him out, again the role of cassie was voiced initially by libby morris with isan churchman then taking over for the second production block
1: and those two were both irish characters and i'm thinking the irish accents may have been questionable
0: i would say so yes
1: <laughs> there were uh, some stereotypes there as as well uh unfortunately And continuing on in the goofier things, we had Gabbler, which is a Martian Gabbler dictum parrot, Professor Haggerty's pet, who he teaches to talk, and voiced by Libby Morris. And yes, that one is quite an odd character, like a person-sized, flightless bird who speaks. So, yeah, some of the odd types of things they included in children's
0: shows in the early 60s. Yeah, it seems like they had to have these slightly weirder and wackier characters.
1: Getting into a little bit more of what happens in this, the Galosphere ventures out to solve problems on the, usually around the solar system on the various planets, encountering various aliens and robots, a variety of strange phenomena. There are people or aliens from a number of the different planets in the solar system. <laughs> Neptune, for instance, they also go further out and discover a planet beyond Pluto, and they encounter beings from Alpha Centauri, you know, from another galaxy. And
0: one of the interesting things that this series does with its uh, space travel is it does nod a little bit to some of the difficulties, uh, the realistic difficulties of space travel. So it acknowledges that space, as Douglas Adams famously said, is very big. And although the Galosphere has a maximum speed of a remarkable 800,000 miles per hour, um, it still takes a long time for the ship to travel to the various parts of the solar system where they're needed. And so in order to do that, the crew will go into suspended animation for the journey while robots uh, supervise the spacecraft. We'll come back to those robots in our production notes shortly. I'm going to say, Brian... A shot of robots moving around that gets reused a fair bit.
1: Yes, there is one of those that we see when they're going into suspended animation and so on. But it is an interesting bit of attention to detail that they talk about how it takes a long time to go to Jupiter or to go to Neptune and so on. Uh, and suspended animation is
0: required. So interesting stuff. Once on these various planets, like, such as Jupiter, they are going to explore the the jungles of Jupiter, many other weird environments. We talked about this on previous shows, Brian, about the, you know, the early 1960s, the 1950s, the idea that life might exist on other planets in the solar system was still quite prevalent. And so they get into some weird and perhaps here much more unrealistic environments on the solar system planets. And we're going to see the puppet characters move around on some quite familiar looking hover bikes. That seems to be one of the preferred methods for travel for space going puppets. And they're used here as well. And again, you'll probably know why they're used, which we'll get to in production notes shortly.
1: Yes, absolutely. There are some familiar things from other puppet shows and the way things were made and that you know there are connections there speaking of which we should get to our production
0: notes so space patrol as we've said was produced and entirely written by roberta lee roberta lee lived from 1926 to 2014 we've discussed her before because we covered torchy the battery boy one of her shows she was a, she's a remarkable woman, a novelist, a TV producer, a screenwriter. Quite an impressive career she's had over the years, Brian. And this is a very interesting show from her.
1: Yes, absolutely. She had written and produced earlier puppet shows, The Adventures of Twizzle in 1957 and Torchy the Battery Boy in 1959, both with AP Films, which was a partnership of Jerry Anderson and cinematographer Arthur Provis. So those earlier shows were Jerry Anderson shows that Roberta Lee was involved in the partnership at the time as well. In 59... Provis and Anderson disagreed about the future strategy of the company and they parted amicably. So that partnership ended. Provis continued to work with Roberta Lee and they came up with the idea for a space series in 1961 where Jerry Anderson went off and did the Super Marionation puppet
0: shows that we know about. So Roberta Lee and Arthur Provis needed to make a pilot episode, they needed to give, to produce something to show to ITV, and they hired a garage in Shepherd's Bush in London, England, and with almost no money, it would seem, they made a pilot episode that was obviously good enough to convince ITV's ABC Weekend TV network, as it was then called, to commission them for 26 episodes... So Roberta Lee then has to go away and write all 26 episodes and begin the production. The first thing that they needed was the voices. And so she, again, I love all these stories about sort of impromptu or uh, improvised studios. She converts the attic of her house in London into a recording studio using blankets as a form of soundproofing. She hires the cast and set to recording all the voices And one of the little snippets that came out of our researches, Brian, was this, the fact that the actors remembered the splendid lunches they were given by Roberta Lee's cook, including apparently a very famous apple pie that she produced, and again, I think of Big Finish, which has got its wonderful reputation for lunches. But here's Roberta Lee and her cook doing the same for their actors while they're upstairs in the attic recording.
1: I was thinking of that too, the famous Big Finish lunches, which are prepared by one of their sound engineers, runs a sound studio, and he also does his own catering. So yes, I thought about that too and while this was going on Roland Whiteside was doing the art direction for the series with Derek Freeborn building the puppets and models Freeborn had worked on early series of the Avengers and also on Pathfinders in Space and would later make models for Doctor Who and even the movie Alien. Which is impressive stuff Indeed. So they built this model of the Galosphere which was three feet high and the puppets were two feet tall so this is quite a large scale set of models they're doing and they carved out wooden faces with rubber lips attached for mouth movements and these were some very heavy puppets as you might imagine with a lot of them being done in wood and they would use this rather cramped garage in shepherd's bush that was Clearly not suitable, so they eventually rented this deconsecrated
0: church in Harlesden in London. And we know this from the Arthur Provis interviews that I've been able to watch on my extra features that this gave them enough room. Although, in order to get enough room in this church, they had to first spend three days removing the church organ. I love, as you know, Brian, I love a story about converting an improvised studio. And I, I'm fascinated to think that at this time, at the same time, Jerry Anderson was beavering away in the car mechanics uh, garages of Slough with his studios. So in this church, we've got them building the familiar gantry once they've got enough room. They need that big bridge above the sets that the puppeteers can be safely on and operate the puppets from. Uh, Again, Arthur Provis says he tried this himself and it was back-breaking work. Those puppets were, as you say, Brian, heavy and difficult to operate. Joan Garrick, Martin and Heather Granger operated the puppets for the show. And again, Arthur Provis remembers that Joan Garrick was one of the few puppeteers he ever encountered who could do the impossible task of making the puppets walk in a realistic fashion we know this was something that caused problems for many a show of this period
1: yes and this was always a challenging thing was to make the walking look convincing and that left you with a few options you could make it look as convincing as you could or you could show the characters from the waist up when they're walking which was sort of awkward a bit too or you could introduce other things so they did not have to walk which gave us the hover bikes, moving walkways, and these monorail tube-type transports that they use a lot in this particular show. And that bridge that they have to put the puppeteers up above the scene, that's what allows them to have a set that the puppets can be on rather than having a backdrop that you're sort of reaching over the top of. So they continue, and this was something that Anderson and Provis and Lee started doing In the 50s, they continued that here as well, using that bridge and being able to have a set and dress the set and so on. Prova spent a thousand pounds of their limited budget, which was significant, a big deal, creating a clockwork mechanism that would make the puppets walk. But apparently it made the top part, the upper body of the the puppets, jerk in a strange way and move around in a way that didn't really work for most of the characters but they were able to use it for the robots and they do have a lot of robots in this indeed yes <laughs> i love this that they managed to get a clockwork robot yes And most of the robots do sort of look the the same they didn't have a big variety of them But the tight budget that they had meant they had to shoot the sequences for each location in a single block. So rather than going in order or episode by episode, they would do the jungle sequences and then the underwater sequences, the galosphere sequences, and so on. Which is interesting because it's actually a more cinematic way of
0: working. But it must have been a huge logistical nightmare for them. And we know again from interviews that Roberta Lee and I... Arthur Provis had sort of masses of calendars and sort of charts on the wall as to which bit was they were filming from which episode a huge challenge for them
1: yeah well you have 26 episodes and you have all these scenes on different locations so missing something from one episode it's something that would be easy to do and very hard to pick up later. So you could see how you would want to really be very careful to catch everything when you have that one set up and in place.
0: Now, all 26 episodes are directed by Frank Gouldin and filmed on black and white 35mm film by Arthur Provis himself. Uh, I'm going to mention the music for the series. Again, a standard to find, composed by Roberta Lee herself, Working with an early pioneer of electronic music, F.C. Judd, and they were using a variety of tone generators looping techniques. They were even using little bits of electronic devices that Roberta Lee had gone out to buy just because they made strange space-like noises. And again, Brian, it's just so fascinating, this period, electronic music being developed... Not very far from where they were. The BBC Radiophonic Workshop were presumably beavering away as well.
1: Yes, that's right. And it's interesting to hear that Roberta Lee and F.C. Judd were doing some uh, some of that at that point, which is, and I don't know how much of the electronic uh, stuff they were doing, but they were doing a little bit. This was very early for electronic music in general. The first episode of Space Patrol was broadcast on Sunday, April 7th of 1963 in the tea-times time slot on ITV, and the success of those early episodes allowed ABC, that part of ITV, to commission a further 13 episodes. And before sort of coming back and doing the second block, the team was able to modify and improve the puppets and the costumes and sets and make more use of the solenoid lip-syncing devices. This is sort of the super marionation type stuff that Jerry Anderson was doing. They were getting into some of it as well for lip-syncing, although I think it was a little bit different. And these later episodes include credit for the Wonderama production company that Lee and Provost had formed by this point. And that
0: second block, would run a little later, running into, I believe, the summer of 1964. And they continued showing them on ITV networks. I mean, as we know, the ITV networks would show episodes at different times and in different orders but they would they ran on through the 60s I think
1: yeah they would continue using them and
0: they had US broadcasts as well yes because of course the big thing was to sell it to the US market which it did succeed in doing uh, it was broadcast starting in January 1964 as you said at right at the start Brian in America it's known as Planet Patrol because there was a previous American live action show Space Patrol from 1955, not to be confused with. So, yeah, fascinating. And we also know that some parts of the episodes were released on a variety of home movie reels on Standard and Super 8 from 1970 onwards. The limits of those home movie reels meant that you could only do about 16 minutes, I believe, Brian. They were short. So they presumably, I've not seen any of these, but they presumably were sort of cut in and abridging episodes to fit on one of these home movie reels.
1: You don't have some episodes of Space Patrol in your collection of home movie film reels? Sadly not, no. <laughs> At some point in the 70s, the videotapes and sort of original film was lost. The tapes were reused, and it was considered a lost series until a complete set of 16 millimeter films were discovered in Roberta Lee's garage. And they were used to do a VHS re release in
0: 1998. Fantastic stuff. And our production notes include improvised studios, electronic music uh, pioneers and a garage find as well, Brian, almost perfect for me.
1: Yes, that is sort of the classic set of Things for children's animation and puppet shows from the 60s.
0: So let's talk about availability and some of the releases more recently of this series. In Region 2, there have been various releases, but I'm going to focus on a DVD release from 2003. All 39 episodes. Quite a number of extras. Episodes of other series called Sarah and Hoppity, The Adventures of Twizzle, Send for Dithers and Wonderboy and Tiger... There's pilot episodes for a colour puppet series called Paul Star from 1964, and then a live-action model, so, well, a mixture between live-action and puppets and models called The Solonauts from 1967. Both of those shows, Paul Star and The Solonauts, were pilots by Roberta Lee and Arthur Provis that obviously didn't get picked up. Solonauts is interesting because it does look a little bit like an early attempt at UFO, in a way, or at least a show that's in that similar vibe to what would later become successful in the 70s for Jerry Anderson. There's also interviews on the discs with Roberta Lee, with Arthur Provis, where I've been getting quite a lot of these little production snippets from, the actor Dick Vosberg and then some notable fans, Andy Partridge from the band XTC, and then a chap called J.M. Straczynski, I know him as a comic book creator, but of course he's probably much better known as the creator and showrunner of Babylon 5, Brian. Yes, a
1: very good writer who worked on a number of of American TV shows
0: and did go on to do quite a lot of comic book work as well. And he was a big fan as a younger person of Space Patrol, and there's perhaps a little bit of DNA of that in Babylon 5, maybe, perhaps? It's possible.
1: (laughs) Knowing Babylon 5 very well myself, nothing jumps out, but it wouldn't surprise me. I know he talked about Blake Seven as an influence, which you
0: can you can see, and I know he's a fan of Doctor Who as well. Fantastic. So that DVD set, currently about 40 pounds. The Blu-ray is actually cheaper now, 22 pounds. I haven't got the Blu-ray. We'll talk about it in a moment. Uh, I will say you can stream it here in the UK as well. On Amazon Video, for about £1.15 an episode, or you can spend £15. They've divided them into seasons of about 9 or 10 episodes on Amazon for £15. And always remember Cinema Paradiso, still a DVD rental site here in the UK. Yes, it is available You can get the DVD on Cinema Paradiso. And
1: I will note that that Blu-ray release makes the episodes look very good, but it has no extras. So none of those interviews and episodes
0: from other shows are available on the Blu-ray release. Which seems a great shame, Brian, because uh, I've certainly learned a lot from the interviews on this. And I know you'd be interested in seeing some of those early episodes or standalone episodes of early shows
1: yes i would be interested in seeing a lot of that and i've been watching on blu-ray so i don't have it in region one brian in region one there was a dvd release that appears to be out of print i see it available at the moment on amazon.com for about a hundred dollars so that's Wow. Yeah, that's rather pricey. However, Amazon Prime does have it in the U.S. for a dollar an episode, or they have it as seasons as well. They have it broken down into four seasons, which are 6 or $8 each. So the total, I believe, is about $31 uh, to get the entire run to watch on Amazon Prime. Now, the... UK Blu-ray release is, avail- is floating around as an import for $26 US or $40 Canadian. So there is some availability, which is
0: nice. Oh, okay. Very good. So that's going to do us for episode one. We're going to come back next time. We're going to talk a little bit more about how science is portrayed in Space Patrol. And we're going to mention a few familiar 1960s science fiction themes or tropes that come up something to talk about when we come back. Absolutely.
1: We'll also talk about the optimism of science fiction and sort of some of the ideas and things from this period and even a little earlier that we see reflected here and we'll talk about some of the spin-offs and other space patrol things that were made available.
0: Plus we'll get to our review thoughts and give you our own recommendations on the DVD, the Blu-ray, or the streaming versions and whether you should be watching this show.
1: Absolutely. So until then you can find all of our episodes, more than 400 of them on britishinvaders.com. Or if you search for British Invaders on Facebook, you can find our group there. Or you can follow us on Twitter. We are at BritInvadersPod. So please join us in some conversations on the socials.
0: Yes, come and find us at Facebook or Twitter. And also come and find us at The Voice of Geeks Network. You hear me talk about them quite a lot. We are part of The Voice of Geeks Network which you can find at vognetwork.com British Invaders is there but there's also several other shows and gaming content lots to find at The Voice of Geeks
1: Absolutely So thank you for listening and this
0: is Brian from Canada signing off Yes, thank you very much Till next time Eamon in England also signing off